Good morning, everyone. Another day, another edition of Ask Boni. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Saskia Kaltenbrunner to you. Saskia is one of the younger members of our group here um, at the Department of Innovation and Digitalization in Law at the University of Vienna. She is one of the few without a legal degree, I must say. She has um, um, a, a BA in Liberal Arts and Social Justice from the University of Warwick and is now studying remotely um, um, a master for risk and disaster reduction at the University College London. Her background is very interdisciplinary, I have to say, with a focus on human rights research and media studies. And before studying um, this and before joining the team in particular, um, Saskia has worked at the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute for Human Rights um, and the Forum for Journalism and Media research in Vienna. Her research interests are media innovation, media ethics, the role of digital evidence in criminal proceedings, data security and risk management. And within the team, she is one of the most important people, I must say, because she's one of those uh, taking care of uh, that we are successful in applying for grants, research grants and uh, research projects. And Saskia, what is not mentioned in your official CV, but what is the reason for having you with us today is that you spent plenty of your time um, in Spain. You grew up in Spain, and in particular, you also spent uh, the critical period um, uh, of COVID-19 in, in Spain. Um, so it's, it's my pleasure to have someone with such an international background here, UK, Spain, and Austria, um, to give us an overview about um, how the situation was in Spain and how it is there at the moment. Perhaps you could briefly start by telling us how the very beginning of all this looks like with a year of distance now to you and how you, um, what, what the main issues and the main feelings then were earlier in 2020. Yes, yes, certainly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the introduction. Um, as you said, I spent the, the first lockdown in Spain uh, since last March and then also significant periods of time afterwards. So I've been able to see how it's how it's developed um, firsthand, which has been a really interesting experience. And I'm looking forward to discussing that. Um, in particular, of course, it's almost been a year now looking back, it's almost uh, difficult to remember that that initial confusion and what the uh, what the concerns at the start were because they have changed so much. Uh, no one at the start was talking about these vaccine questions that are emerging now. But essentially, um, I remember from last March that Spain was one of the first European countries to announce a state of emergency and uh, to go into complete lockdown. And it was also throughout the pandemic been probably one of the worst hit countries in terms of infection rates and, and death numbers of deaths. Mm. Um, so I think uh, going back to last March, really the, the main feeling that I remember was this uh, sense of uncertainty. The only country that had called out a lockdown, I believe at the time was Italy when Spain went into lockdown. And there was almost uh, some sense of whether this is, uh, of whether this is premature. Looking back, it was probably too little too late. Um, from there on, Spain went into one of the strictest lockdowns as well for months. Um, so I think really compared to Austria, for example, the measures were um, really harsh. The number of fines were really harsh. 
Um, and I, I can say from personal experience, I really didn't leave the house in three months. Um, and I think uh, a lot of young people, in particular children and teenagers, were in the same situation as well. Um, and from there on, there was a slightly more relaxed summer as restrictions were lifted. Um, some, there was some attempt to, to save the tourism industry for things to go back to normal. Um, but obviously right now, looking at the situation, Spain is just starting to come out of this uh, third wave of, of COVID as many European countries are. So it certainly wasn't the end of everything when things seemed to go back to normal in July, August. Um, mm. And, um, and they, have, they have continued to, to get worse again, probably since September, October. What is quite similar to Austria, I would assume, is that there is this discrepancy between measures taken by the central government and, and measures taken by the regions. Would you, would you comment on this a little bit? Yes, very much so. I think in particular, that's been a huge difference between how the pandemic has been managed now compared to how it's been managed a year ago. So in, in the first wave, there was a really uh, a centralized approach. There was a national lockdown. Um, it was the same situation in, in my region and in the south and in Madrid. Um, but now, since September, October, uh, measures have been very different from one region to another, from one autonomous community, autonomous region to another. In general, the autonomous regions in Spain have, have um, quite a lot of uh, independent decision making from the central government anyway. Um, so it's sort of gone back to that system rather than what was done in the first lockdown. Um, in general, these autonomous regions were, were closed off mostly. So it was, there were restrictions on travel from one region to another. But then within the region, there were some where restrictions were extremely relaxed, um, such as in Madrid, for example, even though case rate, infection rates in Madrid um, have been almost the worst um, throughout uh, compared to other regions. Mm. Mm, there were other certain cities that went into lockdown very early. Barcelona was in lockdown for a long time, but then other regions only imposed curfews. Measures have often changed every 15 days, once a month. So they've sort of constantly been revised and they've been revised on, on a very localized or regional level which has led to some more uncertainty, I would say, uh, about, about which restrictions are in place at which moment, everywhere, which travel is actually allowed, what constitutes essential uh, trips, uh, at what time curfews are imposed, and, uh, and which establishments are allowed to remain open and which ones aren't. There's been a lot of uh, cases where uh, restaurants would have been allowed to reopen for a month and then close again, but in a uh, almost neighboring village, they would have been allowed to remain open. So quite a few regional differences have emerged. And um, I, I do believe this has caused uncertainty as well about what the, the current restrictions are.
And, and was this challenged by the population? I mean, is there any, any political discussion about whether this is a useful approach that, I don't know, Region A does something very different from Region B and the outcome of this might be then weeks later quite different? Or is this just accepted as something which is traditional and well-established? I would say initially when this was introduced, the response was, at least from my perception, actually quite positive that this was seen as some sort of attempt to um, which it probably originally was um, an attempt to not reimpose a national lockdown um, and for everyone who sort of livelihood depends on their establishment remaining open even if it's just from 9 a.m to 6 p.m rather than from 9 a.m to to midnight um, this was probably seen as a positive development, as the right approach. Um, I think since then, because measures have changed so much, there has been some, there has been quite some opposition to it, both in terms of the population and political opposition. I mean, in particular that, I mean, there have been political parties that have questioned the, the validity of the state of emergency in general anyway, and there have been quite a few uh, strong anti-lockdown movements. So of course there have been groups that have questions whether we should have any, any restrictions at all. Um, but there has also been uh, some, some criticism of this, of this lack of clarity in messaging and is in what is going to happen within the next within the next week. Um, what is what is allowed for for um, for any for any citizen mm -hmm. and this this constant uncertainty as well about whether educational establishments were allowed to remain open um, because pretty much schools and universities have remained open throughout. Uh, which has led to quite a, well, it, it's difficult to say um, how much of the infection rates go back to schools and universities, but there have definitely been some debates about whether it makes sense to close um, sports facilities, but for schools to remain open and uh, similar mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. And um, what about uh, tourism in particular? So do you have the impression that tourism was an important factor in, this, in, in the decision-making on whether or not something should be open earlier than in other regions? Or, and if so, was this challenged or is this challenged in any way? I believe that was one of the main concerns already coming out of the second lockdown that there had to be, because of course, by the time I think the, the first lockdown, and by the time that um, Spain was coming out of the first state of emergency, it was sort of coming up to, to June, July. So I think really one of the main concerns was to lay out a plan to come out of lockdown early on so that there would actually be some sort of tourism, international tourism over summer, which, hmm. which there was. And this, this had an impact as well I would argue on on infection rates after the summer as they started to increase again gradually it it was the situation deteriorated much more quickly in the regions that largely depend on tourism so for instance where I'm from which is a, a Mediterranean region where a large part of the 
um, of the economy depends on tourism, not just internationally, but also on tourists traveling from Madrid and then returning back home after a weekend. This was criticized a lot at the time because case rates went up really, really quickly. Um, and you could very directly see the impact of tourism. At the same time, of course, um, ev everyone whose livelihood depended on tourism was still pushing for restrictions to remain relaxed. And um, one of the big um, one of the big factors that maybe played in, in Spain's favor was uh, was maybe the climate in that situation because it was possible to for a lot of establishments to remain open outdoors for a long time mm. and to try and um, retain some sort of uh, tourism and hospitality sector throughout September, October, even as more restrictions were introduced again because it was possible to sit outdoors um, to exercise outdoors, um, which might not have been possible in other places, but in Spain was still possible to do in December um, and probably managed to save some part of that sector. Mm -hmm. But it has definitely been an important consideration to, to try and just try and reduce the impact on the tourism industry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So in my view, uh, a lot of what you're telling me reminds me of Austria a year later, in a way, right? So this this tourism debate and also the debate about whether or not it would be appropriate to have different regional approaches, um, and perhaps even uh, the debate on whether or not it would be appropriate to keep schools and universities open. So just to repeat this, schools and universities remained open for all the time. Except during the first lockdown. Yeah. Um, so see, from the first lockdown went into summer holidays, but since the end of summer holidays, schools and universities have pretty much remained open. There have been some exceptions as certain cities have gone into lockdown for a few weeks. Um, but in general, mm -hmm. on, a, on a national level, schools and university, universities have mostly remained open. And then, of course, um, there has been uh, the, the, the way this has been dealt with is whenever there was a few cases in a school, either the school would be closed for a few weeks or certain, certain groups, certain bubbles of students would be sent home, would be, mm -hmm. would be tested um, as, as testing has started to become more prominent as well in the last few months. Uh, but in general, there has been an attempt to keep all school and universities reopened mm -hmm. And I think there has also, from it might be different at schools, but my impression from universities is that um, even from the universities themselves, there was not a big push to move things online, um, at least on a, at least on on the level of of, of professors and and people teaching. My impression was that uh, there was there was maybe maybe not that much support. Uh, for online teaching in the first lockdown, that it was a bit, it was a bit messy, didn't function very well. So then there was a lot of uh, reluctance to go back to online teaching now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was not so much a political decision that the education of the children is specifically important and that it's perhaps more important than other areas of the economy, but it was more a mixture of 
not really managing it properly and not really caring too much about it? But... <laughs> maybe. I would say it was a mixture of all those factors. Um, it was maybe also still the, in a way, uh, in a way, trauma from, from the first lockdown where restrictions were so, so harsh that I think the impact on, on children were were particularly severe. I mean, of course, um, this would probably be one of the big challenges just coming up for, for most places of the impact on, on, on mental health and on physical mm. health uh, of everyone after a year of lockdown. But I wouldn't be surprised if the impact in Spain were particularly serious um, because, as I said, children didn't leave the house in months during the first lockdown at all there was no there was no going for a walk there was no leaving the house to exercise the only reasons to leave the house were really for essential shopping mm. or to take care of vulnerable people and essential shopping had to even that was restricted to having to be by one member of the family um, which I know was a regulation in many other places but it was really strictly enforced in Spain so there was the only reason to sort of leave the house with a child would have been if you were a single parent and had to take your child with you to the supermarket. And that was the only chance to leave the house, mm -hmm. which wasn't most people's case. So I think there might still be some some element of, of not wanting to go back to that and having seen how how serious the impact on children was in the first lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I do believe it also played a role that there was that online teaching was not not the most successful everywhere, maybe. And so there has not been uh, not been a strong push to to try and go back to that. But of course, it's a political discussion as well, uh, where the, the, the right to education is, is essential and there has to be some some attempt to try and uh, mm. to try and get. Uh, this year's generation of students to do their final exams to progress to university there has to be some sort of attempt of uh, continuity in mm -hmm. what is happening in, in the education system so it is a debate on a political level as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and this very harsh first lockdown is also challenged from a legal perspective so are there any cases you are aware of or any any lawsuits any anything that that enters the political arena in a way from a legal point of view I know there was quite a few challenges of fines imposed during mm -hmm. the first lockdown because the, num the number of fines was uh, extremely high. Um, I, think, uh, I think I remember seeing it was uh, three times the amount of fines that were imposed in Italy, mm -hmm. uh, which already didn't have the most relaxed restrictions. Uh, and I know that uh, sort of on a smaller scale, quite a few of those fines have been challenged. Mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to, and I don't, I don't think there was even certainty about how to handle this um, from the authorities' point of view at the start, when it came to imposing fines for people moving too far away from their residence hmm. uh, and being asked to return home. So there was a debate about whether people should only be fined if they were asked to return and refused or whether being too far from your official residence was already uh, a justification for a fine 
in and of itself. And I know that fines won't post for that. Uh, and there doesn't, as, as far as I'm aware, there's not, there's not been a, a clear decision yet on whether it was justified to mm. uh, impose those fines without a warning in the moment or not. I, I know there's also the, the, the measures imposed in, in general and um, the, the state of emergency itself. Both times that a state of emergency has been called out has been uh, challenged by, by a political party at the constitutional court, but that's not, uh, that's not really, I mean, the challenge was, uh, was sort of rejected regarding the mm -hmm. first state of emergency. Um, but it took months to, to the Constitutional Court took, took months to, to come out with a statement on that. Mm -hmm. And I believe the review of the second state of emergency is still in, in progress, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. And uh, when we come to today, what, what about how is the vaccination campaign running in Spain at the moment? And is that challenged from, from a legal or a political perspective? It is, as in a few of in a few places in Europe, it, of course, vaccinations have, have started and the progress has been very slow to start with um, and start is starting to pick up pace now. I don't know if it's around um, three or four million people that have received their vaccinations now. Mm -hmm. One of maybe the problems with the vaccination campaign, um, maybe in hindsight, it would result to be, um, to be a good thing, but one of the things that has been debated has been that there is a regional approach to the vaccination programs again. So Just there like is in Austria again, right? So exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, there, there is, yeah, there is no national yeah. approach to the rollout, yeah. the, mm -hmm. the, the vaccines, the vaccines arrive and the vaccines are distributed to the mm -hmm. autonomous regions and then uh, at the start, um, I think it happened a bit like in Austria as well, that mm -hmm. at the start, no one quite knew what mm -hmm. happened to them then. They're distributed. And then when do people get vaccinated? Who actually gets the vaccine? Mm -hmm. uh, this is starting to sort of, to work in a, in a smoother way now. Mm -hmm. uh, but it definitely took some time and a lot of debates about who should receive the vaccine in, in what order. A lot of difficult decisions were of course made uh, the program has been updated many times where at the start I believe it didn't include it didn't include certain um, certain groups of frontline workers of, of key workers mm -hmm. such as police forces and teachers and, um, and firefighters are included now and all of this this including uh, younger groups um, from certain uh, certain workforces only happened after it was announced that the AstraZeneca vaccine would only be used for under 55-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, so, 55 or 65? In Spain, as far as I'm aware, it is still 55-year-olds. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as, as far as I'm aware, that was definitely the, the mm -hmm. other argument at the start, and I think this hasn't changed mm -hmm. which now means that it will be used for uh university staff uh school teachers and quite a few other 
key workers, but then not other groups of key workers, for instance. So I know mm -hmm. one of the debates was about uh, why are supermarket employees not included in this group? Mm -hmm. um, so this, this has, of course, been discussed, as mm -hmm. in many other places. And also from personal experience, I would say it is very rare at the moment to have even to even know when your turn is to be vaccinated mm. um there is maybe three or four people i know overall that have received their vaccine maybe a few more but in general it is only it is only hospital hospital staff health personnel and may and and people in care homes and mm -hmm. carers mm -hmm. at care homes that have received their vaccine so far mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, is there a technology issue also in in the distribution of the vaccine? So that that uh, I mean, I would assume that, like in many other countries, the administration of where the vaccines go to and who is getting them and how all this is documented needs digital technologies. And in some of the countries I'm aware of, this did not really work out very very well. How how is it in Spain? Would you would you agree mm -hmm. that that might also be an issue? I have to think about that, but um, I think the main points that have been criticized are actually more the, the, the strategy itself rather mm -hmm. than the, the technology that is being used to, to implement it. So that's, that's quite interesting because it's not, uh, in my, from, from my point of view, something that has been discussed that much, mm -hmm. maybe because it has just worked quite smoothly. I'm, I'm, not sure about this, but I know that the debate has revolved a lot more around uh, what the idea behind it is and how it should work in practice and who mm -hmm. can store the vaccines and where where vaccinations can take place in the first place, rather than uh, how technologies will be used as a part of this program, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which, yeah, which is quite quite an interesting point. Which is interesting because, for example, in Germany, there is a whole debate on whether data protection is a hindering factor in, in getting people vaccinated or not, mm -hmm. right? And we have similar debates here in Austria and in how far the ELGA, which is the Austrian system of electronic health documentation, needs to be changed in the way to better support uh, vaccination strategies and documentation of vaccinations and so on, but not mm -hmm. in Spain yet. I mm -hmm. Well, not. documentation of vaccines uh, have obviously been a big, a big debate as well. And I think I think Spain was actually one of the first countries, at least that I remember um, reading about considering this this vaccine passport idea. Mm -hmm. uh, again, yeah. probably linked to to trying to support the tourism industry and uh, planning planning for tourism in the summer. Mm -hmm. But I I think I even remember reading about Spain considering a vaccine passport in German and Austrian media at a time mm. when this wasn't discussed that much in Germany or Austria yet. Mm -hmm. So this, this idea of, of tracking who has received a vaccine mm. and of, um, of, of passing mm. on that information to what extent, uh, yeah, to what extent mm -hmm. employers should know whether their employees will be vaccinated, countries uh, have a right to ask when, when crossing the border whether someone has received their vaccine so mm. this this has definitely been a debate and and is there a debate on the privacy implications of this as well or is privacy not that much of a priority here 
I'd say that that is a, a key point with the vaccine passport. So, of course, because there's been quite a strong first anti-lockdown and now anti-vaccine, anti-vaccination movement as well. One of the one of the key arguments is, of course, that mm-hmm. does does whether whether this should be protected should be private information mm-hmm. uh, or or not as part of your of your health data, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I I think I think these are all. It's quite interesting because in Spain, at least in my perception, they are all relatively new debates. So of course this this anti-vaccination question and movement has come up before of course but I believe it has less tradition than than Mm -hmm. maybe in Austria Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's it's gaining a lot of traction now so I'm only used to seeing these debates about uh, whether vaccines can be mandatory uh, whether you can request uh, vaccination of, of children I'm more used to seeing that in Austria rather than in Spain, but now all these debates are emerging in Spain, of course, where um, all vaccines are, are voluntary, as far as I'm aware, and um, this has not been has not really been uh, a question up for debate. But of course, there were mentions with the COVID vaccine coming up that it would theoretically be possible to make it a mandatory vaccine, mm. um, or at least to request the, or to, to request the sort of form of documentation and then very much restrict the possibilities of people who haven't had the vaccine. So I do think privacy has come up as part of this debate as well mm. when it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have a, a theory why this is coming now in Spain uh, and later than in than in Austria or in Germany? Is it because the, the the problems are more evident now than they were before, or is it because of the international debate, or is it because the debate is hijacked by other political movements or parties? I think it's it's mostly come from a political movement, so mm-hmm. it's 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 mostly come from. Uh, a political, um, I would say to a large extent, far right movement or movement mm-hmm. led by far right groups that have become quite uh, quite strong in the last few years anyway, and that have been a, a strong voice of criticism to the government now. And over the last year, this has really changed from being an anti-lockdown movement to organizing anti-lockdown protests uh, and now it's sort of more focused on the vaccination campaign but I definitely think that from this political movement the anti-vaccination side of it has uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. started developing an independent life for its own and Mm -hmm. now it's more something that is is spread through social media and of course um, something that comes from the international debate as well and where international sources are um are used a lot and uh it's it it almost feels like it's it's uh jumped onto the train of anti-vaccination debates now that they are prominent in many places Mm -hmm. uh and i'm sure there were some small anti-vaccination groups before but i just don't think it was as prominent a debate as it was in austria already before this for instance Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And what about the upcoming season of tourism? Is this, um, I mean, are people prepared to another season without non, without tourists? And, and does that play a role in the vaccination and in the digitalization debate? I think this is, if there is another season without tourism, this would really put large parts of Spain in a very precarious situation more than it already mm -hmm. is. And this has definitely been uh, something that the, the vaccination campaign was, was sort of seen as, as the solution that would mm -hmm. sort of, to end all problems. So maybe from the start, there was this overly optimistic approach to the vaccination campaign and this idea that if all vulnerable groups were vaccinated by the summer or even more than that, if all adults or a large proportion had received their vaccine by the summer, that would save the tourism season. And it is simply looking more and more unlikely that that will happen in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no, I don't want to say no chance, but it's not looking likely that all adults will be vaccinated mm -hmm. before autumn or even the end of the year if, mm -hmm. if the current campaign continues at the speed at which it is. Mm -hmm which it is currently progressing. And I think this has sort of left, left a gap of what do, what do, we, what do we do now to, to mm -hmm. try and save the summer season? Um, there's, mm -hmm. I don't know if there has really been that much willingness yet to admit that the vaccinations probably will not be enough, probably mm -hmm. will not do it. And mm -hmm. maybe this is because there is no other solution yet maybe the big hope at the moment is the vaccination passport mm -hmm. so that um, some form of international travel will be possible or at least some form of internal travel um, internal holidays mm -hmm. yeah. but I mean the 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 attempts to save international travel have been so so strong throughout you can even you, you can tell there's from from one on the one hand of course there are the groups that hope that the, the tourism industry will survive on the other hand i think there's maybe even some form of resentment already towards mm. uh the the tour the tourists that traveled over summer and that caused these high rates of infection again so mm. that is that is one group as well that has expressed this mm. this type of resentment i mean there was also some some absurdities I would say happening at, during the last tourism season or let's say in September October where as regions were starting to be locked down again but international travel wasn't really forbidden yet um, there was some time where the debate started that currently German tourists could fly to Mallorca and have a holiday there but people from Madrid wouldn't have been able to. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some resentment and, and concern about how the tourism season was handled last year and the impact it had. At the same time, if there is no form of travel at all, there is probably not enough financial support from the central government simply available either to, mm -hmm. to save the tourism industry through 
this year and it would cause some really serious consequences more than it already has for the next mm. long period of time. Mm. Again, sounds very much like Austria in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Is a tracing app used or a tracking app used? Does that play any role? There, there was a tracking app. Mm. I believe that there still is a tracking app. Um, but it, I would not say it's been very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it was introduced quite early, I believe. I can't remember when exactly, but definitely at, at the time when all these debates were happening everywhere and mm-hmm. um, can, uh, ag- again, this at the time caused debates about privacy and security of data, of course, as well. But there was this relatively fast attempt to introduce a, a completely voluntary, of course, tracking app. Uh, where people could notify their contacts mm-hmm. anonymously if they had been uh, infected or put in quarantine. But I think them, I don't think it is really clear what the problem with it was, but it didn't, it didn't work very well from mm-hmm. the start. I personally remember I had it for months and never received a single notification through it, which seems, mm-hmm. seems unlikely. There was quite some willingness, I believe, to from people to to download it and try and work with it mm. from from the start. But mm. now that's that's really gone down. So, I I believe I remember reading that in around autumn, only about ten to twenty percent of people actually had the app on their phone. Mm-hmm. So mm. at this point, it it really it really can't help much. Um, at that point yeah. can it and it did also it did also feel like mm, surveillance and sort of control of, of cases and notifying people happened much more through less voluntary methods rather than through the the tracking app mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so at the same time as the app was not working and people were um were maybe willing to to voluntarily give their health data but they were not but it was not being useful at the same time um there was all these other debates going on about um drones and helicopters being used as a form of surveillance for uh for movement of people so there was sort of this this voluntary and involuntary uh giving up of data and and linked privacy debates at the time and it definitely seems like the app wasn't wasn't a successful part of the program mm-hmm. it's really striking how much the situation reminds me of the austrian <laughs> situation right so i think yeah saskia that was very very interesting thank you um i don't want to uh, take too much of your time but don't let me finish without asking you whether there's anything that you would like to share with us something that is specifically important to you I believe most things have been said. Um, I do find it as well, and I found it throughout interesting how similarly sometimes the the situation in Austria and in Spain have developed. Mm. Um, but then ha- having some 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 key differences as well, so sort of different different aspects that uh, the the respective governments place their hopes in. So aside from vaccination, which seems to be similar. Um, I know that testing is so prominent currently in Austria, Mm -hmm. um, whereas it's not really that 
big in Spain mm-hmm. um, and I don't know and I, I don't know and I don't know if this is generally known whether that is a problem with availability of tests or with uh, an, um, lab analysis capacity mm-hmm. um, or whether this has simply been uh, betting and putting your hopes on other elements instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, there has been maybe more of a focus on wearing masks in order to reopen spaces in Spain, mm-hmm. which is, is still mandatory everywhere, um, by the way. So even just uh, going for a countryside walk, masks are, are mandatory in, in, mm-hmm. all, in all public spaces. So I think it, it is interesting to see how from the start, probably there was the, the hopes were placed in different elements to mm-hmm. get us out of this crisis. But somehow the situation has still developed quite similarly and we're having the same vaccination and lockdown debates now mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent. And do you think that this is random so that the government randomly decides whether it's better to take, uh, I don't know, the, the, the testing approach instead, instead of the wear masks approach or is this because of i really do, don't do. know there is there is definitely a, a a time where it felt very random i mean i think mm. we all remember at the start when no one quite knew how to how to approach masks for example so mm. it went it went from don't buy masks they are needed for health personnel to everyone should wear a mask and then suddenly they were mandatory in certain spaces and then mm. the debates about which which masks are are useful to a certain extent I suppose it was availability hmm. um, maybe uh, maybe in Spain they became mandatory earlier on and have just remained that way mm-hmm. it's just remained that way throughout now I don't know if the the limited testing that is taking place in Spain is due to availability as well if it's as simple mm-hmm. as that um, that in Austria there are more quick and cheaper tests available than in Spain mm-hmm. because at the moment in Spain as far as I know the the only possibility to um to get tests still unless it's of course after you you show symptoms or um mm-hmm. are certainly a case of COVID if it's just for for private reasons or to to go to school they are still quite expensive they take a day or two to process there are some quick tests available but it's really very very limited i've even heard the argument that there is some thought behind limiting testing on purpose because if testing was increased that would increase social gatherings people would overly rely on it mm-hmm. so that that for example around christmas uh, many more families would have come together at christmas if everyone got tested before and then of course there's the risk of of false negatives and that that would have increased cases further. So I don't know if that was part of the logic. Mm-hmm. It is definitely an argument that, that that I've heard and that I would personally consider a possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I don't know how much of it is random. It's it's mm-hmm. it's interesting. How is the uh, I mean the the translation between the scientific evidence and the political system organized in Spain? Is there I mean is there a group of scientists advising the government and is it the federal government or is it on regional basis and is this challenged in any way or is it just done in in a specific 
<laughs> with, an, with a specific approach without challenging or requesting any more evidence on this. Mm. There is, um, there is, there is the, the scientific advisory group uh, mm -hmm. to the government, which was really prominent, uh, especially during the first lockdown. I mean, um, I think in, in a sense, of course, there were criticisms of, of the way that emergency group handled it as well. Um, and there were criticisms of their main representative. But in general, I think it was seen in quite a positive light, this type of, of messaging that happened throughout. It was actually quite, mm. quite clear messaging compared to, to other countries, I would say, where there was these very um, sort of concise, regular briefs to the population and to the government. And there, was, there seemed to be a good translation from, from scientific evidence to uh, to media communication at least to some extent or I would say that was the perception during the first lockdown and since then it has turned a bit more into this feeling that some decisions are random because mm. they are and that some decisions are not based on scientific evidence but rather a bit arbitrary as well uh, which is probably due to to the regional differences and resentments because of this again so for instance, seeing that Madrid has barely been in lockdown, even though they had some of the highest infection rates in the country, has caused a lot of people to question some of the measures, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So again, quite similar to Austria, probably in, in this point. Then. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so. Saskia, thank you so much for your time. Really, I appreciated this a lot. Uh, thank you for your time and for the, the insight that you shared with us. Thank you to our audience. It was a pleasure having you with us. Uh, please uh, stay connected with us, stay interested, and in particular, stay healthy or become healthy as quickly as possible. Thank you for being with us. Bye-bye.